Welcome to The Roundup, a North Queensland-based podcast with regional content for regional clinicians. I'm Alyssa Hathaway, a GP and family planning clinician and head of JCU's clinical school here in Mackay. This collaborative podcasting project between North Queensland Regional Training Hubs, JCU, and our local regional hospital and health services will bring you a different regionally relevant podcast each fortnight. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands where we meet today, who were the original providers of healthcare in this region. Today, I have Dr. Michael Clements with me. Michael is a local Townsville GP who also has experience with RACGP in their rural faculty and is a veteran himself. Welcome, Michael. Nice to talk to you, Alyssa. Thank you so much for being here for this episode on DVA patients. The Department of Veterans Affairs can be a little bit difficult for doctors to navigate. Can you please start by giving us a little bit of your story and why you are particularly interested in veterans' health? Well, uh, it breaks my heart when I hear some of my veteran friends and colleagues uh, talk about visiting a GP uh, and the GP telling them that they don't know about DVA or they don't understand about DVA and therefore don't help them or don't help them with the paperwork. Uh, and so it, it sort of uh, dawned on me very early on that not only did I need to do my best to support uh, other veterans in my own general practice work, and I've got um, three practices in Townsville and we do have a focus on providing veterans support and veterans care, uh, but actually uh, it, I needed to invest what time I could um, to help support and educate other GPs um, to provide a really high standard of care uh, to our veteran patients uh, to actually help um, our doctors navigate the paperwork, uh, but also help the veterans navigate their transition to civilian life. And so I was very privileged to work closely uh, with Kerry Summerscales, a veteran herself, uh, and uh, NAFL, and developed some education packages looking at supporting our GPs in providing great care to our veterans. Oh, fantastic. So you've got a lot of experience from a personal perspective, both as a veteran and as a GP. What, what is a veteran then? How do we define veterans? It's, it's really uh, important to understand that the, the, the wording has changed over the years. I think people often used to think of a veteran as being uh, Vietnam War or First or Second World War. Uh, there was often the mistaken belief that you're only a veteran if you went to a place with bombs and bullets. Uh, my own career was uh, largely based in Australia with the Air Force as a doctor, uh, working uh, in Northern Territory, uh, Townsville, of course. Uh, but I did my uh, deployment overseas. Uh, I'm one of the operations supporting uh, Afghanistan operations. I went on exchange uh, in the UK. Uh, so for me, uh, being a veteran does include the fact that I did do um, some warlike service. Uh, I did do some humanitarian work, I, but I also spent time overseas on exchange with other militaries. And I spent time in Australia on exercises, uh, working on base supporting our local uh, people doing their work, our local troops and getting them ready. So uh, the definition of veteran uh, is a lot broader now, and it essentially includes 
includes anybody who's done at least one day in uniform. So if there's a reservist that's um, been to initial training, uh, if there's uh, a junior soldier who's uh, been to uh, the first few weeks of recruits, uh, but then decided to leave uh, or had an injury and left, uh, they're still counted as a veteran. So for the purposes of DBA and for the purposes of how we talk about veterans, we're talking about anybody who has signed up to defence, who has essentially signed up to uh, say that they are going to support the Australian community, the Australian people and the Australian government. They're going to do the training that's asked of them and go uh, go wherever they're asked to go um, to support the Australian community. So they're a very valued commodity. Uh, and while every veteran like myself has a different backstory, uh, every single one of them uh, signed the dotted line to say that they wanted to serve their country. Sure. So... For those very deserving members of our community uh, who have been part of the Defence Force, we often hear about white cards and gold cards. I'm not 100% sure of the difference between the two. Can you run us through those, please, Michael? Yeah, it's a little bit messy. So we'll start off with the white card. So it used to be that you only got a card if you had an injury. Uh, and then, uh, thankfully, DVA was able to get through legislation that means that every person that's ever done a day in uniform is now entitled to a white card. Uh, so I've got a white card. Uh, and anybody from uh, whether you served in the Navy 30 years ago and have never talked to DVA since then, they're still entitled to a white card. And a white card uh, is a card that means that the government or DVA are happy to contribute to the health care uh, of uh, any issues that they have accepted responsibility for. Uh, and for all white card holders, that means that they accept responsibility for mental health coverage. Uh, so you don't have to have had depression or anxiety diagnosed by, uh, in defence or afterwards. Uh, but for the rest of my life, for example, um, I am entitled to show my white card and seek reimbursement from DBA for things like uh, GP care relating to my mental health, uh, psychologists, uh, mental health medications, psychiatrists, or even uh, admission to a psychiatric hospital. Uh, and psychiatric medications. So uh, white cards will come with a list of conditions where the DBA have said that they're going to support the care for. So as I said, um, mental health is automatic for everybody, but commonly people will have things like lower back pain, or they call it lumbar spondylosis, uh, or shin splints, or upper back pain, or thoracic spondylosis. They might have um, chondromalacia patella and knee injuries, um, but the white card can have as little as one condition of mental health, or it could have a very wide range of conditions um, that are covered on there. And a veteran will be able to get a printout or a copy of the conditions that are covered on their white card when they log into MyGov. Now, the gold card uh, is something that we often associated with our Vietnam veterans or older people. So traditionally, people used to think of the gold card as meaning um, somebody who was a lot older uh, or somebody that had received warlike injuries or very serious injuries. Uh, and there's actually a number of different qualifying conditions to get a gold card. So uh, yes, it's true to say that many of our Vietnam veterans will have a gold card by now. Um, but uh, I, for example, because I did warlike service, I'll automatically be given a gold card when I turn 70 years old. 
other people uh, will be given a gold card because the sum of all of their conditions has reached a threshold at which the DVA has approved for them to receive a gold card. So I've even had 25-year-olds with a gold card and somebody whose injuries sustained during initial training was so bad um, that they essentially crossed the threshold and have been given a gold card uh, as a, a person in their early 20s. And so that gold card means that all healthcare, or at least all um, medically required healthcare, uh, will be covered under the gold card or subsidised by DBA. Uh, I say medically required because it doesn't cover things like uh, cosmetic procedures unless it's medically indicated. So the gold card, uh, which many people will be familiar with, means that the uh, veteran will get subsidised medications, uh, generally uh, in the order of $7 uh, for their scripts, that they will get subsidised um, GP visits or most practices like mine accept the gold card as full payment um, and subsidised uh, specialty appointments or in most cases, many cases, people do accept the full uh, rebate um, from DVA uh, and equivalent to private hospital coverage as well. Sure. So for our veterans to access services like things like allied health referrals, I will often complete the D904, and I must admit that's the only DBA paperwork that I'm really familiar with. Is that our bread and butter paperwork, the D904? Well, it's interesting. We, we like tradition in medicine. Um, so D904 was the name of the form that we had to use. So this was a very, it was a coded form. It came in in a template. It said D904 up the top. And it was the form that a GP would sign and complete that says that this particular veteran requires allied health support. So a D904 might say, um, please, can this physiotherapist see my veteran? If they're on a white card, it would say for their accepted condition of bilateral knee osteoarthritis. Uh, and then they would get up to 12 visits um, using that referral um, paid for by DBA. Uh, and then uh, with a gold card, you don't need the specified condition because the gold card covers all adult health, everything from chiropractors and osteopaths through to podiatrists, speech pathologists and OTs. Now, uh, in its wisdom, um, the DBA did change the rules, so it doesn't actually have to be a D904 form anymore. Um, right. it, doesn't, it doesn't need to say D904 on it. Uh, DBA legislation says that a standard referral will suffice, but because we like our traditions, I still have my referrals rejected from the occasional allied health person that says it wasn't on a D904 form, Dr. Clements, and they say, well, I could either argue with them and say, well, it doesn't need to be um, under the new rules, or I just give them a D904. So sometimes yeah. I choose the path of least resistance. <laughs> We're often doing that, aren't we? But that's important to know. So we don't have to use the D904 these days. Okay, so what is a claim really? And how are we helping our patients make a claim um, to see if DVA will actually cover the injury or impairment that the veteran is experiencing? So I think most of our doctors and GPs are quite comfortable with managing our veterans in terms of using the white card and gold card to access services. But where we see most of them come unstuck is when we're talking about new claims or impairment assessments. So a new claim is where uh, the veteran has recognised that they've got an injury or condition or illness uh, that they think is related to their military service. Now, if that veteran can prove that their military service led to their bilateral knee osteoarthritis or led to uh, their uh, lumbar spondylosis or um, led a surgery or um, even irritable bowel syndrome and ulcerative colitis, for example, 
if the veteran can prove that they've number one got the condition and then number two defense caused it then that condition will be added onto their white card or gold card if need be and uh, they will often receive some form of compensation or recognition for that in terms of uh, accruing points towards getting things like um, pensions and uh, as part of their impairment assessments. So we often, we are seeing defence do better at trying to encourage our veterans to put in their claims before they're discharged, but we, you will always uh, still see, and I've got veterans of the Vietnam War that still come to me for new claims, where people recognise that they're, they're dodgy back or their dodgy knee actually occurred during military service but they never put in a claim and they'll yeah. come to you and ask you to help with the claim forms so the general process is that the veteran recognizes that they've got an injury or illness that they want to submit a claim for um, sometimes the veteran will use a advocate uh, to help them in this process and i do uh, recommend all of my veterans get themselves an advocate who's more skilled at this than the veteran themselves to help them figure out how to build a case and the veteran will come to you with a form where they're asking for you to confirm a diagnosis of, let's say, knee osteoarthritis, uh, and then certify that they've got that condition. And you, they ask you to sign a form that says, yes, this veteran has this condition. The evidence of the knee osteoarthritis is the plain film, the x-rays that I've attached here. And then the veteran will submit that claim uh, through to DVA and then in time, whether that's six months or two years, we'll get a, a response back from DVA as to whether or not they accept that claim. So you will see more and more veterans try and complete that paperwork while they're in um, defence. But if you've got a veteran that comes to you after discharge and has a new condition that they want claimed, I would normally encourage them to use the, uh, the services of an advocate, which are often free. Um, and then what they'll be coming and asking you to do is confirm the diagnosis, which you might need to order x-rays for, or they, a DVA may give approval for MRIs, or you may, may need to refer them to a non GP specialist but once you've confirmed that diagnosis then you fill out the second page of the form and then they submit it. Right so is that when we start to do an impairment assessment Michael because that's an enormous amount of paperwork can you talk us through that process please? Well, as GPs, we're quite used to uh, seeing patients walk in with a wad of paperwork asking us to yeah. fill out and say, oh, don't worry, doc, I'll just leave that here on your desk. You can do it in your spare time and I'll come and pick it up next week. And we shudder and scream and, and run away. Um, yeah, you're right. So, <laughs> yes. And so sadly, many of my veterans come to me and say, oh, well, I showed this paperwork to my normal GP and they said that they don't do it. And, and that really breaks my heart because an impairment assessment is a piece of paperwork designed for the GP, you, to reflect on the medical condition and how it's affecting your patient, your veteran. And it's always best done by the patient's own GP that knows them and that's been with them. Uh, so I much prefer to support GPs do their own impairment assessments with their um, veteran in front of them than by sending them off somewhere else. So let's say we've got the knee osteoarthritis example. Well, uh, they will come back to you eventually with paperwork for the impairment assessment where DVA are asking you to reflect on the impairment caused by that, those, that knee osteoarthritis. And it asks you questions like, well, how often do they get pain? How bad is the pain? Is it severe? Is it mild? Is it persistent? What does it stop them from doing? How does it affect them? Does it cause them embarrassment? And, and there might be 20 pages of questions about sore knees, which can be quite confronting for us. 
Um, this is a real opportunity for you as a GP to support your patient. Uh, the DVA know that you're the patient advocate. Uh, DVA know that you are uh, not an orthopedic surgeon uh, and that you're not an independent person. And so they're not expecting you to provide an occupational physician's assessment or an orthopedic assessment of somebody's uh, degree of disability with a certain knee condition. They're asking for you to fill out questions that ask the patient, how do they feel? How is the knee condition affecting them. So it's not done to the standard of an orthopaedic surgeon's assessment or an occupational physician's assessment, so you don't need to use them, but you can. You can refer them on to an orthopaedic surgeon to do it. Having said that, many orthopaedic surgeons don't like to do it. Um, but what I normally do, my normal process is that I'll get the patient, I'll have a look at the forms, and it might be 20 pages, it might be 50 pages, uh, and then I'll schedule enough time to manage it. So uh, I might say, listen, I'm, I will do this paperwork with you. It's probably going to take me an hour um, to sit with you and do that uh, and then you um, uh, schedule the time and you sit down and go with the patient and you'll go through and ask all, all the questions you'll ask them to answer honestly and you'll see in the impairment assessment it's not really it's not actually asking you for an independent it's not often asking you for an independent assessment about function it's just asking you to ask the patient questions which is pretty straightforward now um, if you've got an impairment assessment and you're not comfortable or you're not happy with the type of questions or the patient's answers, then you can, of course, refer them elsewhere and say that they need to find somebody else. But I'd prefer that you didn't do that. It's normally better if the, the ONGP does it. Uh, in terms of payment, uh, the impairment assessments pay well. I actually tell my veterans, don't feel sorry for me, I get paid per page. Um, DVA oh. will pay the GP. GP per page, uh, plus for the time. So if you spend an hour um, with the uh, patient and you're doing 50 pages, you're getting hundreds of dollars for that assessment. Um, so please remember when you're doing an impairment assessment, take your time, bill for your time using the normal um, TVA items, um, take a good history and examination as part of it and document that. But then when you submit the paperwork, TVA pay you, I think it's about $11 per page, um, even if there's only one question on the page. So um, again, I I think if people don't recognise that DVA do actually pay us quite well, they might turn these patients away to somewhere else. But uh, that hour of work that I do um, for the, doing the impairment assessment is really valuable for the patient because it's me who knows them that's helping them answer the questions and they trust me. Um, but it also uh, uh, funds the practice appropriately as well. We are actually quite well paid for that paperwork. So um, impairment assessments are really important part of our role as GPs and as advocates. It's not done to the standard of a surgeon uh, or, an, uh, or a physician, a uh, occupational physician. It's done, it's deliberately designed for GPs to answer. So, so please do actually take them on, take the time with the patient and don't forget to bill appropriately. Right, so in terms of billing for other consultations with our DVA patients, does that work differently to our usual Medicare patients as well? Yeah, really, I'm glad you asked. So um, our DVA patients, even under the gold card where they get uh, unlimited and free access to allied health, you are still welcome to use the GP management plans and team care arrangement paperwork. You do not need to do a GPMP and TCA to trigger access to the allied health. But if you meet the Medicare criteria, so as in if you take your time to sit with the patient understand all of their complex chronic conditions, summarise their goals, come up with smart goals um, and a plan of how you're going to help them meet that. And if you get um, corroboration and collaboration with at least two other care providers, 
then you will still meet the Medicare criteria for a GPMP and you can still bill DVA for those items. So if you're taking on a veteran, you'll find that you will be doing GP management plans and team care arrangements for many of them. You will also be able to do mental health care plans. Now, a mental health care plan is a trigger for accessing uh, mental, the better access to mental health care consults. And your veteran doesn't need that because the veteran will automatically get unlimited psychotherapy using their white card. But if you're taking the time to assess your patient, develop a diagnosis and a plan, uh, and you're communicating that plan to other psychologists, then it's absolutely appropriate for you to do a normal GP management plan. Uh, remembering that DVA rates for GP management plan are higher than Medicare rates and the same for um, the mental health care plans and all of the others. And there's one final care plan that many practices aren't aware of um, and they're missing out, Coordinated Veterans Care Program, CVC. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to pause, write down CVC and make sure that you schedule time to discuss it with your practice manager. CVCs are where DVA has said, listen, we recognise that our veterans have complex health needs and need extra time that doesn't always mean face-to-face -face time with you and that they cost your practice time and energy and effort. The CVC program is an additional payment on top of GP care plans and TCAs and mental health care plans for the coordination of the veterans' care. And it's, uh, there are eligibility criteria. Um, gold card holders have to have a chronic condition and be at risk of hospitalisation, which, to be honest, is most of the senior gold card holders that I have. Uh, and uh, you, it's a nurse-driven item, so the nurse spends a lot of time with them, drawing up documents that are very similar to a GP care plan, but different. Uh, and you can go to the DVA website to find out about CVCs and get some templates. But when you draw up those templates in that paperwork and when you follow the bouncing ball for CVC items uh, and the nurse checks in with them and spends time with them at least once every three months, which includes by phone, then you're getting over $2,000 a year as an additional payment on top of all of the other benefits. And right. in the government... In, in the wisdom of the uh, DVA, which I'm very pleased with, I didn't mean that sarcastically, um, DVA have also said that if there is a patient on a white card who has got a mental health condition that defence has caused, so that's an accepted mental health condition where they accept that they've got um, they cause depression. That's different from people that get automatic mental health care like me. Um, this is people where defence accept they cause PTSD. Then they're entitled to the CVC program as well. And I've personally done the maths on uh, comparing how much we get billing a standard patient for AMA, private rates for every time we see them and compared that to what we get for looking after a veteran using the CVC and care plan items. And we're definitely ahead with the DDA patients and CVC. So if you don't aren't doing the CVCs, uh, then you really need to be talking to your um, practice managers and nurses about how to start doing them. Right. Okay. So Michael, we've talked about white cards for everyone who has ever um, signed up for any defence position ever. We've talked about yep. gold cards, which are mainly for older people or for people whose uh, some of all of their injuries or impairments meet the threshold. We've talked Correct. about the D904s now being superseded by any standard referral, even though sometimes people still ask for a D904. Um, and you've mentioned the importance of the advocate for patients needing to navigate the DVA system, which I think is a fantastic system, and the uh, brilliance of the CVC, the Coordinated Veterans Care Program. So 
Thinking about all of the mechanics about navigating the bureaucracy then, putting that aside, what is it in your experience as a GP in Townsville has really stood out for you about the health journey for most of your Defence Force patients once they leave the military? What are the the common things, the common conditions, the common uh, issues that they're facing that we should be looking out for for our patients? Well, well, thank you. And I'm I'm glad you um, helped us separate, I guess, the technical aspects of caring from the veteran uh, to the actual um, joyful uh, and rewarding aspects of uh, looking after our veterans. Um, You know, veterans come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, We've got First Nations veterans, uh, plenty of of female veterans, male veterans, uh, lots of different cultures. Uh, Every veteran's got their own story about the military service. They've got their own stories about why they joined and what they did while they were in. And the 15-year the, the service of a veteran that spent their whole time uh, in Townsville and Queensland is just as important to the military effort and just as important to the country as a veteran that spent half that time overseas. So I really enjoy looking after these uh, people uh, as part of my daily work. Uh, they're often salt-of-the-earth kind of people that put up their hands to say, I want to serve my country. Uh, And even though they may have left the job and they're out now, um, there's still a bit of that still inside them. And so they can be some of the most uh, rewarding and joyful patients to look after. Now, most veterans actually have a positive military experience. Most veterans leave the Air Force voluntarily. Most veterans reflect on the time in the military in a positive way and think about the the benefits and what they enjoyed. And I absolutely loved my time. I'd do it again in a heartbeat, um, but with my family now, it's probably a bit too taxing. Um, But uh, most of us uh, will reflect on the positives of our role. But there are certainly uh, many who may be medically discharged. And so these are people that may have a knee condition or a back condition brought on by work, but has become so severe that they can no longer fulfil the requirements of the job. And remember, in the military, uh, you're in uniform uh, only if they can put you on a plane or a ship uh, and send you overseas at short notice. They need to know that you can carry uh, your weapons, um, fight the good fight, run away perhaps, um, but provide care in a battle zone. If you're not fit enough to do all of those things, then you're not fit enough to be in the military. And so that's why it doesn't take much it doesn't take much of a back injury or much of a shoulder injury or much of a knee injury um, for some of our military people to be discharged and if you can imagine Mm -hmm. uh, for some of our young for some of our young diggers you know somebody that's joined in 1820 with all the ideals served you know done 10 years in done wonderful things overseas uh, you know worked in humanitarian disaster relief they get a knee injury at the gym one day and then all of a sudden the military is kicking them out because they say well you can't be a sol- an effective soldier anymore um that's really heartbreaking um i once looked after a soldier that was shot in the ankle while he was overseas uh, in afghanistan and again the military said listen we want to keep you a great soldier you've done great things but we just can't have you in the military with a bung ankle um so they had to discharge him and so you can imagine that these people men and women who really gave their lives to the service of their country actually can leave defense under a medical discharge quite broken in their minds and broken Uh, in their souls because they've been told that they're not good enough to do the jobs that they wanted to. 
Um, of course, and then there's those that have been exposed to uh, psychological trauma, whether that's in a war zone or humanitarian zone, or even whether that's um, just in terms of bullying and harassment, which sadly occurs in many workplaces, but certainly occurs in defence. Um, I just remember one patient in particular who was a wonderful soldier, was you know excellent at her job. Um, she was sent to the um, tsunami zone uh, in the first crew, and her oh. job was to go and move the bodies off the roads now you can't train for that uh you can't prepare people for that and so it's no wonder that uh, we are now helping her manage in civilian life um, looking after herself in the real world and when this person drives past um, dead animals on the side of the road that takes her straight back to where she was um, at the tsunami zone so you can imagine that that we do have some that just need our intensive care so the first thing I'd say is not everybody's broken, but some are. For those that are broken, uh, we often find that the first thing that we're trying to manage is their loss of self-identity, um, their loss of uh, that life purpose um, that what they had put their heart and soul into um, is now gone. Um, and many people quite proudly identify themselves as a soldier and their unit and their team, um, Army, Navy, Air Force. As Army, Navy, Air Force, we always poked fun at each other, but we're always very proud of the service that we're in. Um, but uh, all of a sudden they're out and they're often given quite good compensation, to be frank. They're often in the first year after medical discharge, they're normally given almost a full um, income. Uh, for that first year. So they don't have to work. Um, but what I find is that if we don't help them find their self-identity and sense of purpose, if we don't help them retrain in their mind uh, that they can actually do something else, they might be still useful. They're still useful as a civilian. The world still needs them, um, whether that be in mining roles, customer service roles, administration roles. Uh, the biggest challenge I have is taking people from that first day after medical discharge um, rebuilding their sense of confidence and helping them find um, their place in society and finding a role that gives them that sense of purpose. Because remember, what often drove them into the military in the first place uh, was a, doing a job that gave them a sense of values and purpose. And as soon as the military takes that off them, um, they can feel quite lost. So I've got some veterans that struggle in that first year that struggle with um, that, that loss and they stay in their four walls and they play their computer games and they're too afraid to go out. They get uh, more agoraphobic. Um, they uh, start chewing painkillers. They start using alcohol more. They stop exercising, so they put on 20 kilos. Uh, and so that first year is really a time that we as their GPs need to be holding their hands and supporting them uh, because that first 12 months of being out is, is often where they need us the most um, just to help them find themselves, get that sense of value. Uh, and I know that as soon as I've helped them find a job that they feel they can do or got them into university and retraining, um, it's only when I've done that that I actually see the rest of their medical conditions, their aches and pains, their sore knees, their chronic back pain, their shoulder pain actually start to get better. Right. Oh, gosh. Dr. Michael Clements, thank you so much for your insights. I can't imagine uh, having a better, more positive advocate in your corner than yourself as a DVA specialist. Uh, I certainly feel that I have more tools and a greater insight into how to better support my DVA patients. And I'm sure that's the same for many doctors across our region. Dr. Michael Clements, thank you so much for your help today. Thanks, Alyssa. 
For more information about the Roundup or to share your feedback and ideas for future episodes, visit nqrth.edu.au forward slash roundup hyphen podcast or contact us at nqrth.mackay at jcu.edu.au. We also want to advise that the views and opinions presented in this podcast are those of the speaker only and do not represent the views and opinions of James Cook University, Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs or Queensland Health. The content supplied in this podcast is not intended as medical advice and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs is an initiative of the Australian Government's Integrated Rural Training Pipeline and is facilitated by James Cook University in partnership with public and private hospitals, Queensland Aboriginal and Islander Health Council, health services, Aboriginal community controlled health organisations and general practice clinics.